Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl Smutko, and with me, as always, is Eitan Rivero-Sheen. Hey, Eitan. <laughs> hey, Carl Smutko. How are you? <laughs> Good. I felt like being formal this week. That's fine. We can take a couple of weeks like that. I just, I, I don't like keeping it the same every week. We already have the form <laughs> intro. We might as well diversify it some. <laughs> I like that. That makes sense. And I think after last week's uh, extravaganza on AT&T, which a lot of people could say, hey, you could spend two more hours talking about it, we are diversifying and basically saying no to that. So that's another way to diversify some content. We have promised ourselves we will keep the AT&T talk to like 10 minutes this week. I think we we'll can see. Our big topic this week is going to be 2021 movie preview, which feels kind of stupid now that I think about it that it's almost the end of May and we're doing a 2021 movie preview, but the movie season really hasn't started yet. <laughs> yeah, and I think when we first started the podcast, we said, you know, it would be fun right after the Oscars to do an episode of the next year of movies. And that was, you know, <laughs> first of all, the, the Oscars were very late this year. And then also AT&T decided to divest Warner, which kind of, yeah, we had to kick this topic down the road a little bit. Before, but yeah, it's almost June. <laughs> There were many more important things to talk about, but there's a lot to look forward to this year. We both compiled our top five list of what we're most excited for in film this year and really happy to kind of give a preview and, and dive into that. I I strategically tried to make it so that my list wouldn't overlap too much with your list, but we'll see if that actually happens. We'll see. Yeah, we'll give some intro of how we built it before before we get there. But why don't we, why don't we talk some news before? Yeah. So in big media acquisition land, or <laughs> divestiture land in this case, this one's a little sadder. That sounds like an awful theming. It was announced that Verizon is selling their Verizon media assets to the PE firm Apollo Global Management this week for $5 billion. Hmm. Isn't Apollo the ones that acquired DirecTV from at Or am I just confusing all the... PE firms, which I shouldn't know about PE firms. That's not something that I want to get known for. Okay, you were correct. Look at that. No, okay. So Apollo made a bid, but it looks like AT&T is going to sell to TPG instead. Oh, right. TPG, yeah. That's the creme, not the creme brulee. The creme of the creme. creme. The creme de la creme. I'm sure we have classmates working at TPG that are going to kill me, but... Okay, yeah, TPG, that makes sense. It does make sense. And yeah, as much as you say, I don't want to be known as a PE guy, (laughs) at the same time, a lot of these assets, I think, are going to be scooped up by PE firms. Theatrical experiences, legacy media. It's a savvy investment, as all this stuff is devalued right now by COVID. And I think this stuff is worth something, especially as everything becomes locked up in these big monolithic towers, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think if having encouraging that liquidity of, like, having an MGM in your back pocket in case Amazon comes knocking and saying they want to pay $9 billion for bond rights, like, mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing to have as far as a PE firm that's trying to flip an asset. Right. And it, uh, you know... It makes sense, and this is, these are definitely some of the assets that don't make sense within the other world of acquisitions that we talked about last week around, you know, studios right. and Amazon potentially doing MGM and all of this stuff that seems to be brewing. 
Yeah, the the Verizon media assets are, are weird. It's a lot of journalism and legacy media in that regard. So you've got HuffPo, TechCrunch, Engadget. You have the AOL assets they brought in. You have Yahoo. You have, I think Tumblr is still under Verizon as well. You've got hmm. a, a lot of interesting assets that certainly make even less sense under a Verizon than under an AT&T, I feel like. Right. And this also sounds like one of those things where Verizon probably wanted to get rid of all of this and they said, I don't want to sell one by one. That's going to be too much work. Apollo, why don't you do it? Which is what they're probably going to do. Sell it for scraps. Yeah, it's... So, I mean, it's been called Yahoo, Oath, and Verizon Media all in the last three years. It's multiple identity crises. crises. It's, it seems like a good time to get out, especially when everyone's attention is going to be focused on this bigger deal and this bigger quote-unquote failure. I think these assets did less for Verizon probably than Warner Media did for AT&T and its brand, but it's it's a piece with the trend. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting uh tangential. I mean, it's called Verizon Media, but yeah, I guess more on this weird internet world mostly. We'll keep an eye yeah. on it. I don't did they still have rights to season 6 of Community? Remember when they dropped that on <laughs> Yahoo? Yahoo Screen. Yeah. The only thing that I've ever watched in Yahoo Screen. I was I loved Community at that when when oh, it was I, happening. I love Community. It's except for what what did they call it? the Gas Leak year season 4? There's like one mm-hmm. good episode in there, but yeah. all the all the Dan Harmon years are are fantastic. Yeah. In uh, if you haven't listened to our episode from last week, uh you should go listen why Community is not like Shrek. Even though yes, it might appear at uh, first sight. <laughs> on, pretty meta. Pretty meta. Um, on other, we like Carl said, we're going to keep this to less than 10 minutes, but we wanted to get a couple of updates on like more color and more information has come out into the world about the acquisition since last week. And we picked up on a couple of interesting bits and pieces that we just wanted to react live to about. I think the first one was something that. Um, I shared with you about how <laughs> going back to how these transactions start with people and how weird and quirky people can be, but it literally started with a text where uh, David Saslav, I believe, texted John Stanky because they were both watching a TV tournament, a golf <laughs> tournament, sorry, not a TV tournament, and they were both like, oh, you know, it sounds like blah, blah, you up, want to chat? Yeah, that's it. Literally sounds like a like a you you up sliding into your DMs text from David Soslav of, "Hey, I have this crazy idea. You want to talk, John?" And it's the reporting this week's been very fun because it seems like everyone else has always also been like, "What is up with this transaction?" And who the hell is David Soslav? <laughs> and New York Times did a lot of reporting. They there's an excellent Times piece that we'll link to around the just how this entire merger even came to be so we're pulling some of this there's a lot of anecdotal stuff that came out on twitter too but there's also some i think more operational details we wanted to talk about like where that 43 billion dollar is in cash is coming from that's going to (laughs) at&t and apparently we learned that uh this was also interesting as part of those uh uop texts uh they started talking about three months ago and they started involving bankers uh, including 
from the AT&T side, Goldman Sachs, who was the bank, not only the bank, but the exact banker that helped them acquire Warner Media was helping them offload it. And then they had this requirement that they needed to get some cash. And Goldman was like, uh, I can do $43 billion on my own. So we're going to bring in JP Morgan to help. And apparently what's happening is that they're getting this loan that AT&T is getting $43 billion in cash. And what we're assuming is going to happen is that Warner Media slash Discovery is going to own that debt. So AT&T gets $43 billion, And now this new company is kind of on the hook for paying that back, which is... It's just a fascinating... I'm trying to put myself in a banker's shoes for the first and hopefully last time of my life. And I would imagine it's a weird transaction because David Saslav and Jovan Stankin need to convince them that this company that doesn't exist is going to be able to pay back $43 billion. What a way to start a company by being leveraged to the tune of $43 billion. $43 billion. Just bananas. But... uh, yeah, like you said, it's still not exactly clear if that's what's happening, but that's that's what it sounds like. Another major question that was answered was was Keylar, the CEO of Warner Media, was he actually involved in this? Did he know anything about this? And no, it sounds like he was told at the last second, "Hey, this is happening. Sorry." We'll figure out something for you. We'll figure out a nice exit package. It sounds like everything was happening under cloak and dagger. Everyone was meeting in secret with lots of code names on every side. And Jason Gillard just had was completely out of the loop here. And as was Warner Media. Which tells me some very interesting things. The first one is connected to the UOP, <laughs> to the messages point. This was Discovery-led. Like Discovery wanted to make it happen. Saslav was bogging Stanky until it happened. But it also just shows very clearly that if Jason Killer wasn't consulted, not only to see what it would be of his role, which it sounds like he's not going to be in, involved, it's just that Warner Media in general wasn't involved at all on if this yeah. makes sense, in what the strategy might be, in how they might think about how to combine with Discovery. Like, none of this work has been done by anyone at Warner. It has been everything Discovery. So now suddenly when it starts, like all the executives under Killer that stay are going to be like, well, I'm just, I'm guessing we're going with whatever you have planned because you didn't involve us in this deal. I'm really interested to see how this company works internally because the people that led this transaction are the minority shareholders in this transaction. It, it sounds like, wh- what is it? Salzlov's going to get a hundred, he's getting some ungodly. 130, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Million worth of shares. Like, yeah. It, it sounds like there's a lot of buy-in from the Discovery side, but he had to do a lot of work to convince the majority owners of Discovery that it was worth taking a minority interest position in this company. So it's it's interesting that they don't have the equity position to make these decisions, but it sounds like they have the culture position and the buy-in from everyone involved except for, you know, the majority shareholders of the company. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also connected to this point we talked a little bit briefly last week, where it sounds like they needed to get buy-in from these minority shareholders, not only of this new company, but also to change the share structure so that this yeah. new company is also more acquirable. And it's crazy. This company is not going to exist until summer 2022. And they're already setting it up and talking about how it's such a good asset for somebody else to buy, which is bananas. Is really, really <laughs> weird. Like, you've got Stanky and Zaslav out there saying, like, yeah, this would be a great buy for an NBC Universal." what <laughs> this company doesn't exist yet they also kept couching it by like uh, of, of course if the justice department would approve such a thing what is 
the point. <laughs> it's like the most blatant company flipping in existence. But even then, I really struggle to see if this company's valuation is as high as we were saying it is last week. Who could afford to purchase it right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because even Amazon that we talked about with MGM, they could buy them for $9 billion. The most expensive acquisition Amazon has ever made is Whole Foods for 13 This yeah. company we might be valued at 150 by the time it exists. That's even, what, $50 billion more than what AT&T paid for Warner and like double what Disney paid for 20th Century Fox? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be that easy. And there was some really interesting context uh, talking about the Amazon deal, which this is all like, it's all in my head all at once. But yeah. Amazon's rumored deal for MGM is $9 billion, And Peter Kafka, formerly of Fox, is he still at Fox? I don't know where he's at. Recode? He's at Vox. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought he was still at, at Fox, Recode, whatever. But he pointed out that a decade ago, the acquisitions of Marvel and Star Wars combined, or Lucasfilm combined, equaled about $9 billion. So it's just fascinating to see the inflation of these assets to the point where Bond and a bunch of legacy stuff is worth the same as all of Marvel and all of Star Wars was 10 years ago. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, supply and demand, right? Things are drying up. You suddenly can't just buy content. Everyone has deals. Sony has a deal with Netflix yeah. and Disney. Now this is the only way to get licensing, seems like. We can talk more. I'm sure we'll have an episode on Amazon and MGM and in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And hey, even Disney apparently can't buy their way through anything either. Another thing that came out in a New York Times piece, was it today? It was, it was very recent mm-hmm. where it apparently Bob Iger called the Warner Media a week after AT&T already started negotiations and trying to figure out an operations plan way back in 2017. So AT&T bit the bullet. Warner, they did a handshake agreement. They were like, we're going to make this happen. And apparently Bob Iker called to see if Warner was interested in a sale and it was too late. There's a world in which Warner and Disney are combined and Fox is now a free agent or even Fox is at AT&T or something. It's really wild. Shooting from the hip, we haven't prepared this. What's a better fit, Disney and Warner Media or Disney and 20th Century Fox? I think 20th Century Fox is because Fox has a lot of brands. I think Fox also struggled a lot under News Corps in its identity as a, you know, not really Rupert Murdoch company mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> under a Rupert Murdoch company. And I think they were able to kind of come in, dictate their own terms, and fully integrate and own this content. Whereas I think Warner has so much baggage from the fact that they would now own DC and all the DC fans, or to the fact that they would have HBO. And HBO is, like, if they had a dream for what Hulu's content was three or four years ago, it probably would be we want to be the next HBO. So that would kind of make sense. But even then, like, I think... HBO under Disney would be a little bit more heartburn than FX and Fox are under Disney. Yeah, I think I agree. Like, I think they would have divested uh, CNN. I don't see how they would have kept it. And then the other side that 20th Century Fox was easier was it was so much easier for Disney to kill everything animation in 20th Century Fox Mm -hmm. than it would have been to kill everything in Warner. Like, could you imagine Disney owning the Looney Tunes and all of that stuff? Also, 20th Century Fox came with Marvel, which is pretty nice i know that's not exactly why they did it but yeah 
Yeah, interesting that yeah, it there, seems to be... There's some nice the, synergies there, for sure. It's interesting that it was the first call before 20th Century Fox. Maybe they just thought he wouldn't sell Robert Murdoch. Who knows? Yeah, I I could see why... I mean, Warner's certainly the biggest bigger fish. Like, all issues of mm-hmm. synergies between the content or trying to actually acquire something that large and integrate it with their stuff aside... But I think you're right that it was just easier to slide this in. They could kill Blue Sky really easily, keep the Simpsons around, dump a lot of the other stuff. Like, It makes sense that there's a, a lot more overlap and simplicity, and they've got a great film catalog. Whereas Disney's film catalog like, is great, but is very family-friendly, whereas I think Fox brings an edge and a lot of adult great stuff. Yeah, It also simplifies the Star Wars rights. I think it was a lot of dotting the I's and crossing the T's of... Stuff they owned and they needed to get back in house, Spider Man not included. Yeah, I agree. That's on a middle episode anyway for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things with Warner is Hollywood is very excited that Warner is now going to be independent again from, from AT&T at least, and they're going to be going back more to theoretically respecting creators, respecting theatrical, whatever. But at the same time, Universal made an announcement today that I find really interesting because it flies in the face of that. Okay. Which is that they're going to push Boss Baby 2 to day and date on Peacock. This is their first day and date release. Oh my god. How is Peacock doing? I don't know. I was trying to... I had this question the other day. I tried to look at the numbers and it's like... It seems to be doing fine. It's not doing bad. Last, last thing I remember hearing about them was what we talked about like three months ago about their super confusing pricing strategy around the office basically yeah. uh, i need to this is one that is off my list i just haven't find the value proposition for what i need i guess i'm gonna you know when i'm gonna check it out when i need to rewatch parks and rec there you go which yeah, it's, i'm gonna fa- i feel like i'm gonna follow your advice and i'm just gonna buy it physically just yeah for the shows you rewatch i own all of 30 rock for that reason this is one I know I'm going to return to for the rest of my life. But other shows where it's like, yeah, I might watch this one more time in my life. I don't necessarily need to own it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. This, this day and date release is weird. First of all, with the pricing tiers, they announced that ad support or the free version would not be get the day and date release of Boss Baby 2, but the AVOD and ad free version would get it. So there's yet another piece of customer confusion. And then... Not only do they have the deal with AMC they made last May in a panic where they agreed to a 17-day mm-hmm. release window in sharing PVOD. Apparently, there's also a deal with Cinemark where I don't think they're sharing PVOD as or as much, but they are sharing, they're doing a 30-day theatrical window. So it's <laughs> very confusing as, as what this is. It seems like it is going to be a true day and date. And they're going to cut them in on this, and it's going to be like kind of an ad hoc. As a movie comes out, they'll have to go to AMC and Cinemark to make a deal on a specific movie, which uh, sounds like a nightmare to work at Comcast right now. Yeah, in partnerships. Yeah, that sounds awful. That's so confusing. On the Peacock side, we this is the news, so we shouldn't talk more about this. But we need to do an episode around what you said, customer confusion. Like this pricing stuff, also with the new HBO Max yeah. stuff, and that information quote-unquote that is coming out of how they're going to price it and how customers are going to understand it it's so confusing this is kind of the opposite of (laughs) that streaming should be for 
but um, we should we should look into that one. We should. I think that's a great episode around like communication and confusion. And something I tweeted about last week was that HBO's ad tier being ten bucks versus the ad free tier being fifteen bucks. Like, yeah, that's weird. That it's very weird. Seem like not weird. It's very it's very bad. I'm gonna die on this take. It's awful. It's, <laughs> terrible. It's <strategy>. Terrible for <laughs> a, as a customer acquisition play. It is terrible because any rational consumer is going to just pay for the 15 bucks or you know just not pay for not. hbo yeah it's it's weird people are like well it's the cheapest hbo's ever been and only ads are only going to be on non-hbo content who's going to know that yeah. oh my god but at the same time at&t has made a great business off of confusing customers and getting them to pay more for less so <laughs> par for the course from an at&t perspective yeah i want to see david saslav figuring this out and just being like no Ad $3.99, it has a ton of ads and it's an awful experience. But you can come in and you can see everything. Yeah. Hate the ads, pay $15. I just, just wait until there's like 10 different options of how to slice and dice ads versus free versus non-ads for your Warner Discovery Plus promotion. Like, ugh, no. Mm, That's the future. Bundling. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. no. <laughs> Ending news on... Uh, funner, more cool, whatever terms, at least for us. Let's talk a little bit of Disney, including a little bit of theme park stuff. Woohoo. Woohoo. So something you have heard us allude to on this podcast is that there's been this ongoing saga with the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot <laughs> and the animatronics within the Three Caballeros ride. Yeah, so the Three Caballeros, very close to my heart movie that has aged very poorly. It's one of those movies <laughs> that really needs uh, kind of a PC uh, warning ahead of it. But it's a very cool ride in the pavilion. And they used to have these three animatronics that got replaced by basically planters with hats. And everyone was saying, like, is this them just giving up on this ride? Like, is Three Caballeros, you know, the only Donald Duck um, ride in, the, in any of the parks, like, just going away? Are they okay, Philhar Magic for? is kind of Donald Duck. <laughs> you see his butt. Philhar Magic, yeah, that's fair. And he's also now in Minnie and Mickey's, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Rail Train or whatever. But, yeah, but it's not Donald butt. Duck's right, right? Right. This is like Donald's Duck. Uh, right. And uh, Carl was carrying me because he was like, you know, maybe this is for a Coco, right? And I'm like, uh, probably they're going there, but I don't want them to. News is... They brought back the animatronics, and they look amazing. Like, it's actually pretty impressive. There's one of, I think, Paquito, the Brazilian guy, playing the guitar. Yeah. And it looks incredible. And this is not Carl and I biased, like, oh, this is a dumb animatronic in Disney. What do you mean it looks incredible playing the guitar? It actually looks pretty great. Like, it has individual finger movement in each of the hands while playing the guitar. So I shared this very excitedly with Carl, and then he doubled down on his take of, like, well, this is actually pretty good way to practice for a cocoa playing the guitar animatronic. <laughs> so, damn you. Um, but anyway, that's the Mexico Pavilion saga update. Yes, we will link to the, the TikTok that shows you the before and after of these animatronics. But Disney's animatronics are really impressive. The, the, the animation, well, it's not really animation because it's a physical thing but the movements of the animatronic are really fluid and beautiful and it looks like this character is actually playing guitar as opposed to moving their hand back and forth across a, a guitar in a wooden fashion so it's it's nice that this ride has a second life for something that's very 
much something that I think they could get rid of easily at Epcot and replace with the most popular movie that takes place in Mexico in the mm-hmm. last few years, or at least family movie. So I I am excited because it's a win for original theme park IP that's based off of old IP that isn't based off of a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have no faith that it's not just them practicing making a guitar playing robot so they can re-sign it. <laughs> like, what if they just did Superstar Limo and just put Coco, Coco. masks over everyone? <laughs> I, I think my biggest takeaway from this, something you mentioned when we were uh, talking about it, is, like, if anyone at Disney is listening to this, please hire us to work in Imagineering. This is the best job in the world. It's like, how does a decision-making go to, for somebody says, a priority is to fix these three animatronics in this very random, low capacity, there is never a line ride in Epcot. Like, this is where we need to put our research. Like, somebody cares about this. And I love this person. This is awesome. Thank you for taking care of these very specific animatronics. I want to be a part of that decision-making. I don't care about spinning off Warner Media 10 times in the next 20 years. I want to figure out how to choose which animatronics to fix. We need to set up a stuck-in-development signal so people can leak things to us. Exactly. <laughs> From Imagineering. <laughs> we want to see the email thread on how the, the animatronic got chosen. Well, continuing on theme park, I want to talk about food in an area of Disney California Adventure that I am pretty mixed on. It sounds pretty lame to me, and that's Avengers Campus. Because you are, do you like Galaxy, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy versus Hollywood Tower of Terror? I never rode the California Tower of Terror. By all accounts, it was just a neutered version of the far superior Florida one. Correct. Like, kind of up and down, whereas... At least the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout is a lot of... There's a lot of movement, a lot of fun. It's a fun ride, even though I despise Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay. So, it's a good ride. I just... The the Marvel stuff they have there besides that is the, like, awful airplane hangar militaristic stuff. And it it seems like they're going to be just kind of doubling down on that and making a larger area. And it's called Avengers Campus, where it's... I... It's... I I don't know. It it seems just kind of a lame area built around this stuff that's just a placeholder until they actually have the Avengers rights on the East Coast where they can build something bigger and nicer. Yeah. Supposedly there is a ride coming, an e-ticket. When I was at E23, they showed something that's like 2025. Like an Avengers ride also coming there. Who knows? If they figure out the ride. There's rides. a... A Spider-Man thing that's like AR-ish, right? Yeah, and that is actually launching, I think, in the next couple of months. Which today they announced that it's going to use the same system of Riders of the Resistance for ticketing. So you need to do the queue line at 7 a.m. and at noon. Confusing people, again. Customer confusion. But you wanted to talk about food. I'm I'm happy for there to be a a new (laughs) e-ticket there to draw away people from Rise of the Resistance so it's easier to ride. (laughs) Take people away from cars. I want to ride cars. Yeah, and I want to ride the Little Memory, but nobody goes on that anyway, so I don't need help. But food. Did you yes. see the two food options? No. I know there is a Pim's kitchen around Ant-Man that yeah. the food is huge or small. Yes. So there, there's two food options that they've launched. And I'm interested in this, not because, again, I care about the Avengers and I'm excited to eat Avengers food, but it actually just seems like a radically nicer step forward for theme park food, which Disney has done a lot uh, over in Galaxy's Edge, they have something called the Ronto Wrap, which everyone loves, which is just a sausage and a pita with coleslaw. 
Like it's it's a weird oddball thing, but it's actually like a nice awesome. filling. It's very good snack. Yeah. yeah, and the breakfast version, very good. Yeah, and it seems like they're kind of continuing with that trend. So they're gonna have a shawarma cart, which makes sense mm-hmm. based on the end of the Avengers, and it's just gonna they have a they're also doubling down on the, the vegan options. So there's an impossible shawarma wrap, and then there's chicken shawarma, and they have a breakfast shawarma. So that that's it, but it looks good, and it's like cool. That's a very handheld, easy to eat food in a theme park, and it seems a little. It, it's better than a cheap, awful burger or a slice of pizza. That, that sounds great. The Pims, I forget what it's called, like the Pims Kitchen, uh, named after Hank Pym, Michael Douglas's character from Ant Man, is going to be lots of weird, large and small food. So they have a sm- a small version of the sandwich that's a normal size. They have like a, a panini. And then they have a quantum sized one, which feeds 10 people and costs $100. What? Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so sad that your bachelor party is not going to be there. Well, it was never going to be in California, but we should. That's a to do for this podcast to, to try. So that's that's fun. And they have lots of just like weird snacks that are like faking being large versions or small versions of things. Or they also there's also a bar attached where apparently they fill the, the beer cup, the the mugs or cups or whatever from the bottom up instead of. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Which is like a, a normal technology, but it, it's like going to be fun in practice. And it seems like they actually put some thought into making good food and having decently themed food in this experience instead of what it currently exists over there in California Adventure, which is a bunch of like that side of California Adventure is atrocious from a food perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think I think they're also doing some interesting stuff. I know this is not food, but in the Spider-Man right. You're going to be able to, like, buy stuff for the ride. Have you heard about this? Yeah, there's, like, a spider bot or something. Is that what it's called? Spider oh, wait, bot? I think wait. it's just called that. But that spider bot is just something you can buy in the gift shop. Okay. This is going to be a ride when you can buy enhancements for the ride. So, Matthew Ball has talked about how the theme parks are the best microtransaction, you know, yes, they are. thing ever built in the world and apparently they're taking it to the next level we can talk about the ethics and if we agree with it but apparently you're going to be able to buy your way into a different experience at the ride itself so you're telling me there's dlcs for rides now no (laughs) i do not support this i do not want this I, yeah, I don't want to pay incremental add-ons to have a different ride experience just because it's an AR-based ride. Like, no, please. But it makes sense. Microtransactions are the bread and butter of of the Disney parks, especially in Florida, too, where you have a a band where it's all-inclusive, or so your brain thinks. But Mm -hmm. no, I don't want DLCs on rides. Why'd you have to tell me this tonight? (laughs) Well, sorry. The last point I wanted to make on that is like, I think we've said that we're all in for interesting new things on rides and how Millennium Falcon kind of failed on the promise of rideability and the ability to make decisions that affect the outcome of the ride. Yeah. And uh, again, doing it with money doesn't sound like a great idea, but if this is what it takes for those changes to actually be meaningful and change the ride experience in an important way, I want to see what they do. And I want to see what you could actually change um, and see where it goes from there. It sounds like it sounds like the way to try it, right? It's like put a price to entry, we'll make something interesting, we'll learn about it, and then we'll figure out what's the next version of it. But that's my way of thinking. 
I'll, I'll cautiously, cautiously see how this goes. I'm not going to pay more for a Spider-Man ride, but very well, I could pay for a better It's a Small World experience. We'll see. <laughs> That's so cute. You, you want to pay for a better It's a Small World experience? It sounds like we need to go to Tokyo and ride Simbath. That's the way to pay for a better It's a Small World experience. You are correct. That is just the better It's a Small World and potentially better pirates too without the nostalgia. So Sounds like it. And I know we're getting into very niche Disney listeners. Bear with us. We're about to move into the main topic. Yeah. So as a segue into the main topic, which is movies that come out this year, let's talk about a trailer that dropped today. Eternals. We talked about this movie, I think, two weeks ago, because it's Chloe Zhao's Marvel movie, which has come up multiple times, and how Carl almost died because apparently the Marvel folks were amazed that she was able to shoot an actual sunset without needing visual effects, which is just like, oh, oh my god, is this the death of culture? But the trailer came out today, and uh, for me, the biggest takeaway that I told to Carl, but apparently it went over his head, was to see Salma Hayek leading a group of superheroes. It's pretty cool. It's Mexican. It's the <laughs> I same Salma Hayek. As, I mean, it's the same way as watching Diego Luna in a in a Star Wars movie. I'll take it. It's also interesting because it seems like Game of Thrones. Both Rob Stark and Jon Snow are in it, which is a bit confusing. Uh, well, did you watch it? I mean, what it's also it's also sprawling pseudo family dynamics as well, which very much fits into the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. milieu as well. Uh, well, as much as they hyped up the fact that they shot it at sunset, it seems like they put a, a nice post-production sheen of CGI darkness over the top of all of it because it looks I don't, this, this thing as much as they hyped it as being like a new direction visually for Marvel, it looks like every other stock Marvel movie. No. Uh, uh, sure. <laughs> I think we, like, this, yeah, this is some of the point where I, I, I'm going to love your more developed and actual intellectual take of what this means for the future of cinema. In my opinion, it's just like, if Marvel is going to continue to be, you know, he's going to drive the cinematic, the basically the movie theater business yeah. for the next couple of years, at least let's see if they do something that is actually a little bit different and it's not... I hate... Well, I hate... You know those behind-the-scenes videos from, like, Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame? Mm-hmm. That it's everything. It's on a green screen. Yeah. Absolutely 100% on a green screen. Putting people on a hill, that seems revolutionary. I know the bar is very low, but if it's going in the right direction, I'll take it. I'm, I'm an easy person to please uh, in terms y- of... Yeah. You're right. Like... At least it's a real hill. But at this point in CG, at the same time, it doesn't really necessarily need to look... A, a fake hill can look like a real hill and look fine. Like, David Fincher's been doing digital set extensions for, like, 15 years at this point, and they look great. I I think just for me, like I just bristle at this idea that Marvel has a house style where just everything gets flattened out by post-production and effects that just look like spells from like League of Legends or something. Like they they're nice looking, but they, they they're not revolutionary looking for the most part. Like I guess Doctor Strange is a pentagram or whatever that looks cool, but for the <laughs> most the most part the stuff visually doesn't look that interesting and for from Chloe Zhao's perspective, you bring her in for her visual style, her visual acumen, which 
she shows shows off spectacularly spectacularly in No Man Land. And I mean, you can kind of see it here. At the same time, it looks like they just pasted a bunch of Marvel stuff on top. And you bring her in for this kind of developed and well-observed view of, of people and, and what makes them tick. And these characters all seem like pretty stock Marvel characters and making stupid Marvel jokes at the end and references to the larger universe. Like, I don't see a lot of her in it. And I especially didn't see any of her in, in, in the trailer when her name's not even on the trailer anywhere, which seems like a a weird move considering she just won Best Picture and Best Director for Fox Searchlight. Yeah, from award winner, director, producer, and editor, Chloe Zhao. Yeah. Not Why a... not? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. That's the same opportunity. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the Eternals are not gonna is not gonna be in your top five list of movies for 2020, no. 2021. Okay. It certainly will not be. It I will see it. The cast is great, and some of the stuff in the trailer does look compelling beyond the visuals of it all and the who's gonna lead the Avengers of it all. But yeah, I this is just more of the same for me. I'm on I'll look much more forward to 2022's Pattinson Batman over this. Not because I prefer Batman to Marvel, but generally I prefer the Batman movies to the Marvel movies. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. This is a also a good transition for us to talk about the movies that we're actually interested about. Let's go. So before we start, we know we want to go from five to one. What's the 30-second version of how you built this list? What what did you take into account? How did you rank them? What did you consider? Why didn't you consider? So for the most part, I tried to stick to... So all of these films are uniquely me and things that I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. I tried not to go for super obvious ones, with one exception. I tried <laughs> not to go as much towards studio... like big flagship franchise stuff with one exception <laughs> and overall i was just trying to shape a list that felt like you know these are the things that i have a, a high potential of really really loving this year that really speak to me and that's where okay. i came from it what about you that makes sense i think it was kind of similarly being very thoughtful that the things that might interest me about a movie might be significantly more shallow in terms of like I see a name and that gets me excited and so I might be and I think my list is going to reflect it like I might come up with movies that I try to not include any movie that is like very hyped already so like mm -hmm. uh, I love I'm sure it's going to come up in your list maybe but like I love In the Heights I didn't put In the Heights there that might be my number one but I might still like my top five might still be you know if you google for any you know, what are the best movies of 2021? I might be with the usual suspects. Um, I would say listening, you share with me the Little Golden Man, Little Goldman podcast from Vanity Fair. Great resource for anyone who wants like a deep dive on not only this movie, but like everything that's coming out in 2021. And it's also interesting to see them look back at the year before, which is what we hope to do next year, and seeing like, what do we think was going to happen? And again, we're really, we're reading these from you know, two sentence descriptions. None of these movies have trailers, for the most part, in general, not even. And um, it's going to be funny to see who has the best eye at reading names and saying if they're going to win something in a year. <laughs> I mean, certainly, much of my list is driven by the people involved, 
less hype for me and more just the people involved like lots of creators and actors that I, I like and casts I like are what drove this list for me because at the end of the day hype doesn't mean a lot because hype evaporates and also as someone this far out of the development pi- pipeline it's difficult to actually be aware of who are people maybe releasing their first film this year outside of the Sundance or Telluride circuit mm-hmm. it's much easier or South by circuit it's much easier to kind of go for people that are at their second at, at bat or a very established filmmaker. I think it's also going to be interesting to see, look at back at this list and just see our personalities come through in them. Yes. So on that note, what's your number five? So my number five, it's a movie that I've, I feel like I've been going up and down and up and down since I first heard about it. Then I, and it's tick, tick, boom. It's yeah. uh, one of the other works by Jonathan Larson, who is a screenwriter for Rent. Um, this is a movie that when it was announced, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is directing, and that's something that does not excite me. I think he's, uh, he's excited. He's, uh, my fandom for Lin-Manuel Miranda has decreased a lot over the last, mm. last couple of years. He's also working with the Walt Disney Animation on Encanto, which is their animated movie for this year. And he's just doing a lot. So that doesn't really matter that much to me. I love Rent through Ariella. She passed that to me. I love that movie. I haven't seen the the play, but did you know that he passed away the day of the first preview of Rent of yeah. Broadway? Yeah, it's just one of those crazy facts. I think like they're gonna ask him for in a thousand things. years. Yeah, and the movie—it's a musical. It was acquired by Netflix, and basically the story. Let me know if you can reflect. It's like it's of this guy who's writing his own uh, musical called Superbia. And he's about to hit 30 and he doesn't, he can't really make it happen and he's kind of losing his dream. And he has a roommate that was also a creative, left his job to go work in Madison Avenue in advertising. And John's, this guy's girlfriend also is like, come on, you stop putting your life on hold. And he's hitting 30 and he's, which is exactly where I am. And he's like thinking like, how much of my career and my life is it what I want to do and what is going to excite me? Versus, oh, I, I need to kind of focus on this other thing that is supposed to give me a better life, quote-unquote. So, excited from the Jonathan Larson side, the story side, not the Lin-Manuel Miranda side. That's funny, because I am most intrigued by the Lin-Manuel Miranda side of this. Okay. Because I think he's a fascinating and, and tremendous creative force. I don't like his singing. I think his singing mm-hmm. sounds frequently the same i don't his voice annoys me frequently mm-hmm. i'm thrilled that in the heights which may or may not come on my li- up on my list <laughs> does not focus on him but instead focuses on anthony ramus and from what i've heard of the album i much prefer ramus's take than miranda's take but it's just in the heights and hamilton are just undeniable as far as just the the creativity and the like amount of scope and the material he covers within them mm-hmm. just shows a really great instinct and the ability to kind of weave multiple storylines and 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 handle a lot of details while also conveying them really simplistically and I think that's something that is very much a director skill set so I'm excited to see him give his all as a director to a project where he's not 
also the face of the project. Mm-hmm. I also love Andrew Garfield as well. Oh yeah. So I, I I'm so. just excited to see see him do this role. So for me, ultimately, yeah, I I'm intrigued just to see how Lin Manuel Lin Manuel Miranda's career is shaped by him having potentially a very well directed film that could pull him further from Broadway and further from this rut he's been in where he's just screen he's songwriting for every studio at this point yeah that helped me realize that maybe where i'm coming from is that i don't know if i want him doing his first directorial debut with this story this seems to be kind of a very special story it was only off off broadway and this kind of the first time that it's coming into the light and it seems like a very important baby so i hope he does a very good job at it i'm rooting for him i would say i i am too and i think he certainly can resonate with the material considering how much time he spent gestating on Hamilton after in the Heights. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he has something to say here. I'm, I'm interested to see what his overall take on, on the material is. And I think you'll be certainly very respectful of it. I'm, I'm interested to see it certainly almost made my list. I kept it off because I thought it might go on yours. So mm. I'm glad, glad I kept it off. <laughs> yeah, you did. What's your number five? My number five is M. Night Shyamalan's Old. <laughs> I'm not an M. Night Shyamalan guy. Tell me about it. I didn't used to be. I was too young to appreciate early Shyamalan. By the time I was becoming old enough to really engage with Shyamalan and film conscious enough, that was that was like the happening last airbender after Earth Shyamalan. So for me, Shyamalan was always a a punchline and not an actual respected filmmaker. And then obviously watched signs and unbreakable and the sixth sense for the first time. Like, Oh my God, this is, he's one of the most interesting visual stylists. I love this guy found split to be pretty compelling. And then glass is a favorite of mine. I think glass Mm -hmm. is a five-star movie. It's this bizarre academic treatise on why superhero movies are bad, even though, the first Unbreakable film is this bizarre treatise on why superheroes matter. So it's just, he's a he's a weird dude. He self-finances everything. I quite like Servant on Apple TV as well. So I just, I'm here for him doing another thriller that he's financed himself. He puts it all on the line. He's leaving it all on the table to make these lean little thrillers now instead of trying to be a studio filmmaker. And I'm here for it. Also, the cast looks great. Got Gail Garcia Bernal. That's mm. a guy for you. Mm. Yeah. Nice Mexican actor. You too, Mama Tambien. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Vicky Creeps, who I fell in love with in Phantom Thread, like quite a few people. Thomas, Thomas and McKenzie and Alex Wolf. I think it's a, a great cast. But really, I just want to see M. Night hit it out of the park again with a, a thriller that might be a little more approachable than Glass was. Hmm. Okay. I'll take that. That's interesting. I'll, I'll add it to my list, my to-watch list, maybe not my top five. Also, the title's funny. Old. <laughs> Does it have an exclamation point at the end? It should, like mother. Mother. Yeah, old. exactly. <laughs> or like womp, very Jenkins. Very Jenkins. Anything over. Okay. Uh, let's see. My number four. It's basically uh, Ridley Scott's 2021. <laughs> it's in general. <laughs> Because, like, first of all, House of Gucci, we talked about the 
the photo with uh, Adam Driver and Lady Gaga. Yeah. But let me ask you this. He was working on this movie in 2006. And he... Do you know who were the two people that were rumored to be cast? Put yourself in 2006. Adrian Brody? Hmm. Well, I guess this, this, the guy could actually still be today. Well, no, he's too old now, but... Brad Pitt? Almost. Leo? Leo, yes. Okay. And, and for her? 2006. Yeah. You saw a trailer well, with her today. Oh, Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie. Okay. Then. I, I guess Adrian Brody, because Adrian Brody seems to have 2006 Adam Driver vibes, but Leo's a, a star, so makes sense. Apparently in 2012, Ridley Scott's daughter took over the directorial debut, and they wanted Penelope Cruz to start. Then in 2016, it was Wonkar who was going to be the director, and he wanted uh, Margot Robbie to be in it, and then Ridley Scott came back in 2019 with Adam Driver and Lady Gaga, which, again, bananas. But we have basically two pictures, and Lady Gaga and Adam Driver seems to be loving it. But have you heard about Ridley Scott's other movie? Yeah, the is it The Duelists or The Duel? What the is Last it? Duel. The Last Duel. I named two other movies that exist, so yeah, okay. It's a 14th century adventure of knights. With Adam Driver, Matt Damon, Jodie Comer, Ben Affleck. <laughs> what? I want to watch this movie more than House of Gucci. This is going to be so weird. I hadn't heard about it until I was reading more about House of Gucci. Maybe I'm just lost in the world again. I'm not Carl and I haven't heard about this stuff. But this looks awesome. The last duel's been in, I think, post-prod for a while. It was a pre-pandemic movie. I got confused because The Duelist is actually the name of Ridley Scott's first film. <laughs> of course. Just so funny. Yeah, it's going to be his year. I am... Period pieces, especially medieval... Especially pre-1900 period pieces just aren't for me. I Maybe that's a, a bad take, whatever. No, it's just... I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love living in that world. Sorry, that's not for me. So, sure, like, cast sounds great. Also, it's Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Nicole Holofcener are writing a screenplay together, which, whoa, I'm interested to see what that is and interested to see if, like, Ben's going to come up a little bit, I think, in the Oscar discourse this year, not necessarily our list. So, yeah, I, it's going to be his year. The House of Gucci photos are already the best picture of, of 2021. The best sure. pictures, exactly, yeah. Best pictures. Yeah. What is your number four? Yeah. Number four is Brady Corbett's The Brutalist. So, okay. have you seen Vox Lux? I don't think so. It's Natalie Portman playing a Lady Gaga type? Nope. This Vox Lux is an insane movie. It starts with a school shooting and also has a terrorist attack in it and is about like a pop singer's career and her relationship with her daughter. Wait, I just googled it. Box, box office 1.4 million? Yeah, it didn't do too well. Wait, 1.4 million? Yeah, not at all. Wait, 1.4 million? Did it open uh -huh. in one theater? Maybe. What? This is like the time I saw Lucy in the Sky and the opening weekend was like 100k and I was like, cool, I'm glad I can calculate exactly like how many people saw this movie and I was one of them that saw it opening. Weekend. Oh my god, nobody saw this movie. Okay, so why are you excited about it? I did. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
So I love Natalie Portman, which she's not in The Brutalist, but Vox Lux is just so my jam. It's it's very jarring. It's very cold. It's very, it's got a lot of stuff going on. And, and Corbett's just, he's a very dark filmmaker. His first film was called The Childhood of a Leader, and it was an adaptation of a Sartre story about fascism and child abuse. Anyway, this guy's weird. And his next movie is about two Holocaust survivors, Joel Edgerton and Marion Cotillard who moved to the United States, and it follows their lives over 30 years as Joel Edgerton is an architect pioneering the genre of brutalism. Hmm. So my so my jam, and so off-putting probably for most people that just heard that description. So, Do you like the Phantom Thread? Oh, I love Phantom Thread, okay, yeah. I was going to say that sounded like a very specific <laughs> epic of, the, of someone with a very specific job description. Yeah. I, I love I love Phantom Thread. Okay. The cast here is stacked, though. It's Joel Edgerton, Marion Cotillard, Mark Rylance, Sebastian Stan, Vanessa Kirby, and Rafi Cassidy, who had two roles in Vox Lux and I think should have won an Oscar for Tomorrowland, another bad film I stick up for. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is just, this is the most Carl movie, and I expect no one else to see it, and that's fine, but I'm glad Brady is making it for me. We should, we should watch the uh, watching party, a watch party or something. It sounds interesting because in Boston there is this uh, the government center building, the city hall. Mm-hmm. It's like this crazy brutalist building. So maybe they could do a, you know, like a drive-in with that building as a background. That would be interesting. There is also a very famous brutalist building in Berkeley. I think literally they're uh, civil engineering and architecture building. Uh, this is a tangent. Anyway, I don't know if you ever saw it. If you're if you're in back have. in the Bay Area, you should go see it. It's in front of the business school. Okay. I've been through their engineering quad before. I was really struck by their one engineering building that looked kind of like a cabin and it's got lots of wood and everything. Mm-hmm, it's really mm-hmm. beautiful. But I don't remember that. But br- brutalism, I brutalism's nice. It's not my thing necessarily, but in theory it could be my thing. Okay. That said, the only person the only way I could be more excited about an architecture movie is if Zack Snyder made his Fountainhead adaptation movie. So <laughs> Zack Snyder. Somebody gives Zack Snyder money to make an Ayn Rand movie that'll like convince a bunch of boys that Ayn Rand's great. So I want to see that movie. Bad for culture, bad for society, but I want that. Good Please, power. Warner, give it to me. <laughs> the new Warner might. <sighs> okay, my number three is Olivia Wilde's follow-up to Booksmart, which is Don't Worry, Darling. Description, a 1950s housewife living with her husband in a utopian experimental community begins to worry that his glamorous company may be hiding disturbing secrets. It was a bidding war right after Booksmart came out, I think, in 2019. It was in part of the blacklist. It was in the blacklist in 2018, which is this list of, uh, would you say, movies that have been stuck in development? Well, I guess they they haven't even started development, but they're like the most likely to make it. It's Mm -hmm. actually kind of a hoop thing. Uh, Florence Pugh, Chris Pine, Originally, Shia LeBeouf, 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 whatever, he got replaced by Harry Styles. Apparently, he had dropped because of scheduling conflicts, but turns out he was an asshole instead, and Olivia Wilde was like, yeah. get the hell out of here, which makes sense. And it's going to be interesting. I still think of Olivia Wilde as 13 in-house, mm-hmm. and I really like her in Halloween. I think she's great in About Time with Justin Timberlake. Pretty devastating death. And uh, yeah, looking forward to see her second territorial. I love Booksmart. So, excited for this one. Booksmart's great. I love Olivia Wilde. She always has a very striking presence, even if the role 
underserves her. Like, I think she's great in both her and mm-hmm. Richard Jewell, despite those roles being kind of underwritten and thankless. She brings a lot to them. And she's a tremendous director. Like, Booksmart's great. And I'm excited to see what she does next. And excited for Harry Styles to be a movie star. Like, he's... Have you have you seen Harry Styles live? I have. <laughs> in concert. No. Should I? My sister's obsessed with Harry Styles. And a few years ago, she came down to Dallas when I was living there. And we went and saw him. And he is a rock star. He is very much like... He's like a hot Mick Jagger. Like, he's got a lot of presence. He He knows his angles. He's really compelling thought he was good in his small role in Dunkirk. Excited to see him get something meteor and see if he can actually transition into being a, a Jagger or Bowie and having a kind of weird film career on the side too. Hmm. A Lady Gaga. A Lady Gaga. <laughs> what do you have for three? The Matrix 4. Ooh. Yes. Come on. I am just so intrigued by whatever the hell a Matrix 4 is because... The Matrix Revolutions ends pretty, I think that's a pretty decisive ending, all things considered. Also, Reloaded and Revolutions are pretty widely hated. I love Reloaded. Reloaded's my favorite Matrix movie, and I'm kind of, I am vibe with Revolutions too. Yeah, what's your take on 2 and 3 in terms of like, one is kind of revered of this philosophical self-standing story. Reloaded is also my favorite, but I think because of where I watched it, it was just the most visually striking. Like that whole scene it is. that starts in the house with the two brothers and the chase is like the definition of an action sequence in my head. Like 25 minutes of like that, even the soundtrack is just mm-hmm. great. But I know that it, it does kind of both those two kind of took away a little bit from the power of the first one. So where do you stand of like, also, yeah, the third one kind of ends with him making peace with the machines because he killed the program even though the machines controlled the program (laughs) in the real world anyway yeah the matrix films the first one is great by itself it's a perfect film it's so practical and tactile despite being all this these insane special effects but that they pulled off with a bunch of dslr cameras all strung in a row like it's crazy technical achievement but i think I could go on about The Matrix and The Wachowskis forever, so just give me like two minutes. Please? Three. Cool. Okay, great. So I've got a lot of stuff to go through here. First of all, I think Reloaded and Revolutions really flesh out the universe and really get at a lot of more actually deep and interesting philosophical questions as opposed to the first one, which is very much just kind of the the red pill pill allegory of the cage thing. Uh, the films have aged tremendously well as far as being a trans allegory, not least of which because the two directors are trans women mm-hmm. and they've kind of owned that. I think at the Star Wars prequels or the the two Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are contemporaries in development with Matrix 2 and 3, in that they were shot on sound stages in Australia, mm. doing all of this very green screen heavy work, pushing digital effects forward. But I think the Matrix films are more successful and hold up better. And even if they're like kind of goofy looking sometimes with the CG, it's so stylistic that it doesn't look bad. And I just, I agree that Reloaded has the best action sequences. The Burly Brawl is, is mm-hmm. tremendous. And yeah, the highway chase sequence is one of the best action sequences I have ever seen. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. 
So for for all those reasons, I'm excited. But also, the Wachowskis are just fascinating filmmakers. Like, I think right. the Matrix sequels suffer you like from Cloud the same... Atlas and Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, I love Cloud Atlas. I think they both their their films tend to push the medium forward in ways that you might not necessarily know, or they're even ahead of their times. I think Speed Racer is the biggest example of that. Where Speed Racer, watching it, you're like, this is not a movie. This is something else but i don't know what this is just the visuals of it are so strange and cg and just mixing all these mediums and i think it's it's off-putting in the same way that people found the matrix sequels off-putting but i also just love how earnest they are as filmmakers like cloud atlas and the matrix movies and jupiter ascending all have like a really strong positive heart to them despite thinking the world is a bad place but they ultimately i think think that there are good people and things worth living and fighting for. And that's just such a great message, especially in this like oversaturated darkness, edgy market that we live in today. I'm sad that only Lana is returning to direct this, but overall I am, I just want to see what this is. And the fact that the original cast plus Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris is returning. Mm-hmm. Cool. Great. Sign Bye me guys. up. I will be there opening night. I don't know. Maybe. They sound like they could be bad guys, no? I think of the... Uh, what's the name of the French guy? In the movies, in the two and three. The... Blech. Oh, the... The cause and effect. The Mandarin something? Yeah, she's just tasting a cake with reality. Well, him. I think of Jonathan Grove and Neil Patrick Harris. Like, they both could be able to play, like, that type of program. Like, bad guy type Absolutely. Of, yeah. Huh. The Merovingian. The Merovingian. Yeah. He almost yes. uh, keymaker. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, we know nothing about it except that it was shot out primarily in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. cool. Excited to see it. Yeah, that should be fun. Your number two. So your number two, I have another one that might be pretty high profile. It's Coda, which is mm-hmm. now holds the record for the most expensive Sundance acquisition, taking the <laughs> the title away from Palm Springs. And it's a pretty Cool movie. It's also in the veins of Sound of Metal from this year. Coda stands from Child of Deaf Adults. And um, it's a story about this high school senior that is the only hearing person in her family. And she's basically, you know, typical torn between do I stay and continue helping in basically the fishing business that is going away, I think in Boston or in the, the Oscars in Massachusetts, or do I go follow my own dream of music, which also kind of goes a lot away about like the family. Supposed to be great. This is one of the only ones that people have actually seen. Rave reviews, Sundance, mm-hmm. huge bidding war between Amazon and Apple. Apple ended up getting it. And it's supposed to be great. This year, Sundance movie did amazingly. Um, Minari, Promising Young Woman. Uh, was Nomadland Sundance? No. No, it was Venice or Toronto. It was Venice. Yeah. Or I don't remember. It was one of them. One yes. of those two. And uh, so, yeah, this sounds like this could be the one from this year that uh, kind of runs away and stays high throughout the year. It will be fascinating to see Apple beat Netflix to a best movie. Um, So yeah, we'll see. That's my second one. I hear your argument there, and I I think I agree with your argument, but at the same time... The, the I have no argument. Sun- I haven't seen it, so I'm just... Okay, <laughs> as far as, like, vibe and, like, ability to succeed. Okay. The two previous... Sundance acquisitions that were big were Palm Springs and Late Night. Oh, Palm, Palm Springs. Springs, obviously very good. 
kind of got screwed over by the pandemic and its release. And I think in a, a different world probably would have had a little bit more awards traction Both, yeah. if it had not just been unceremoniously dumped on Hulu. But the previous one, Late Night, Late Night just kind of landed with a thud. It was Amazon, which yeah. to your point, like that that's part of it is Amazon might not be the best at cultivating these properties and pushing them as far as they're trying to build their library instead. But I, I don't necessarily think a big Sundance sale or or excitement out of Sundance necessarily translates to success. But at the same time, I think if it's a dramatic Sundance film and it's good enough, something like The Last Black Man in San Francisco, it'll at least have its defenders and its critical favorites. So excited to see it myself. Yeah. I don't know when it's coming in Apple. I don't know if they're also going to play the timings and say December so that it's an Oscar movie. But yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. My number two is Koganada's After Yang. So Koganada is a director that has made one previous film, Columbus, which is solidly in my top 20 movies, period. I adore Columbus. So Koganada was a, a video essayist. What he did was he made a lot of just kind of visual essays, no voiceover, very little expository, just really focusing on the visuals and some of the sound uh, around great filmmakers. And that's, he was just kind of this indie dude on online who was making these video essays and posting them on Vimeo. And he he made this movie Columbus, which I heard about on a podcast. Uh, it was film spotting from the Chicago public radio guys. Great podcast for just kind of keeping up with what's coming out each week. And it's like, I am sold. It, it's Haley Lou Richardson and I'm talking about Columbus. Haley Lou Richardson and Parker Posey and John Cho and just so my jam. And it's set in a small town with a lot of mid-century architecture, much like Bartlesville, Oklahoma, the town I'm in. <laughs> so I, I kind of get with just, I just vibed with the story of this character feeling stuck in this small town. And it's also an architecture movie. So as we've established, I apparently have a thing for architecture movies. Yeah. Anyway, After Yang is nothing like this. It's a sci-fi film starring Colin Farrell about a world in which robots are common and this family's robot babysitter is dying and they're kind of trying to save the life of this robot babysitter so that's what after yang is and i'm so into that have you seen the umbrella academy i have not seen the umbrella academy okay. and probably don't watch won't. it yeah don't watch it but they also try to <laughs> save their mother that it's a robot slash her nanny okay that's interesting and i i also added columbus to my to watch list yeah coconut is I, I like very, he's a very warm director, despite being kind of a cold technician at the same time. Like, definitely seems to be, like, kind of in the Kubrick vein of, like, he just loves, like, these cold, very angular shots and whatnot. But I just, I love his visuals. I think he provides found a lot of warmth in Columbus, and I'm excited to see what he does with sci-fi. Okay. Pretty good. That's great. So, number one... I think this might be one of the most on-brand <laughs> Eitan uh, mm, let, me, let me guess. Is it a Mexican filmmaker that I purposely did not include on this list? Yes. <laughs> is this the only... Wait, is this... So I'm talking about Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's first movie since uh, <laughs> The Shape of Water. And wait, what did you, were you going to have it and just you just didn't have it because you thought I was going to have it? It's on my short list of 
Like, I've, I've got some honorable mentions that I'll go through quickly, and I am very intrigued by this project. So, so if I wasn't a ton and I wasn't obsessed with Mexican filmmakers, where would you have it? I don't think I'm looking forward to it as much as these films. Okay. But at the same time, part of this list was also me trying to share some films I'm really excited about that other people might not be as excited about. So I think Nightmare Alley, people are very much looking forward to seeing what Guillermo del Toro comes up with next and tell us about it. Yeah, so it, it's a psychological thriller, which I think it's a little bit new for him. Uh, of course, he's the master of horror, but like adult horror. Like, I don't want to say non-scary horror, but, you know, like Pan's Labyrinth is not actually horror. It's not supposed to freak you out. Um, based on a novel. Same name. It was a movie in the 1950s, I think. Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, William Defoe, Tony Collette, Richard Jenkins, Ron Perlman, Rooney Mara, David Strathairn. Uh, who David Strathairn? I just watched uh, Nomadland finally, mm-hmm. and I was trying to place him because, and I was like, there are so many movies where I've seen him. I can't believe I can't think of it. And then I started researching that day. I was like, oh, look. Speaking of which, yeah, Ron Perlman also basically in all the Guillermo del Toro movies. He's he's Hellboy. He's in Pacific Rim, uh, so a long story there, and um, seems to be great. Set in the 1950s, Guillermo del Toro, I love when he does different things. This is new to him. Go for it. Go do it, my man. Let's get another Oscar for Mexico. The source material and prior adaptation are both incredibly dark. I have not read them, but I have re- read about them in anticipation of this film. Okay. I really just, I want to read the premise on Wikipedia for this film because it is just an insane sounding premise that I was on board with instantly. Mm -hmm. Stan Carlyle, an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, hooks up with Dr. Lilith Ritter, a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Ambitious carny. Instantly sold. (laughs) What the hell does that mean? I have no idea. Apparently, Leonardo DiCaprio was said to star. Bradley Cooper took over him. Of course, Leonardo DiCaprio has a Mexican director to thank for his Oscar, so I can see why he was interested in working with Guillermo del Toro. And uh, yeah, this is another, in the stocking development world, this is an interesting movie because this is one of the first ones to stop production for COVID. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was actually them saying, like, we're stopping production. It was supposed to end in... They be, I think they stopped in March. It was supposed to end in April. It was supposed to be a December 2020 movie. So it could have actually been already in this Oscars. They started back in September and finished in November. So we'll see. December 3rd, 2021. Kind of, you know, very specific December Oscar season. And we'll see. Did you see the interesting part about the novel and the original adaptation is that they came out with one year of difference? Like, the novel came in 1946 and the movie in 1947, which seems wow, no. bananas for these worlds <laughs> with how long things take now. But, uh, yeah, that's my number one. I guess very tele- telegraphable, I guess. Bradley Cooper is one of those actors who I, I think Star is Born proved that the dirtier and darker he gets, the more compelling he is. Mm-hmm. I think he could have, like, rough him out up a little bit, and I'm just excited to see him be an ambitious carny. I'm also... <laughs> I'm going to throw up one of my honorable mentions here right now, which is I'm very com- interested to see what his Paul Thomas Anderson film is uh, 
currently titled Soggy Bottom, which I hope <laughs> sticks around because it's a, a great title to hear a bunch. It's about a, a child actor in the 70s, and he's the star of it. So it's going to be a good year for weird, dirty Bradley Cooper performances. So he's going to be in Soggy Bottom and Ambitious Carney? Yeah. It's pretty high up in cool names for a year. Yeah. So, all right. I think you probably know what my number one is, and this is the one that I wanted to avoid putting on the list, but it, it truly is my most anticipated film. In the Heights. In the Heights, yes. Yeah, well done. I'm pretty excited about it as well. I There's not much more to say about this. We've pontificated about this film and how it's going to save musicals and or cinema before. And by all accounts, like the first Rotten Tomatoes, or I mean, the first reviews, you know how much yes. I hate Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> but it currently has a 98% score on Rotten Tomatoes from, I think, 50 critics, and it has an 82 meta score showing that these, the critics are effusive, and like critics like David Ehrlich that are kind of tough on movies love this movie. And I just am so thrilled to be able to see it on a big screen next month, and we'll be there as soon as I can. Oh, yes. I think it's going to be my first one back in a movie theater. It sounds like John Chu was able to really, you know, with the help, of course, from the screenplay, but, like, getting a three-hour Broadway musical into a two-hour movie when you have to add an original song so that you can, you know, go for an Oscar, it's not as easy as it sounds. It's not literally copy-paste, and it sounds like everything works great. They reshuffle a couple of things. They move things around in terms of, apparently, of the order of events. Sounds like the cast is amazing. Sounds like the sets are incredible. And it just sounds like great. Yeah, you were saying, like, we, I also read the Ehrlich's piece. It's like, the things that he complains about, he quickly follows up with, like, but this is very minor. It's actually, like, super, super great. It hits more than what it misses. And I can't wait. I think this is a movie that I'm going to come back and come back and come back again to see. And I feel like, we, yeah, we talk about it every week. Uh, but it's just that exciting. It's coming up in three weeks. The pitfall of a lot of adaptations of stage and musicals in film are just going very straight with it and maybe just shooting it more flashily but still having the base thing. I think some level of adaptation is good and some people are upset that they did change some things in the musical. But overall, it's it, you, like you said, you're trying to condense this and make it palatable to an audience. It's still two and a half hours. It's still a long, big-budget musical. But it's it's compelling, and it's exciting. And as much as people went crazy for La La Land a few years ago, La La Land really only has a handful of set pieces that are expensive. The Most of, most of it is very small pieces mm-hmm. or stuff mm-hmm. augmented with CG in kind of a fantastical sense. This is a ton of extras, big sets. It's it's something that's a huge achievement in just the technical side of directing, and I'm thrilled that it seems to have worked out for him, and I can't wait to see it myself. Yay, I can't wait. These are going to be great. Honorable mentions for you? Yeah, I think here I have a couple of the things that uh, we touched on in terms of movies that might be you know, more known. I have In the Heights. I have The West Side Story. I have Fast 9. Fast and Furious is bringing movies back. It's Apparently it came out already internationally. 160 million in its opening weekend. It's still not coming out to the US. So 
I think they're going to space. I don't even know how. Like, <laughs> you, I can't believe you have never watched any of this. But like, that's gonna be fun. And uh, I think my honorable mentions were a, a couple of these, uh, you know, potentially more traditional, potentially more, you know, we've heard about them, we know where they're coming from and what they might be, I guess. The other one that I have, I have a couple of others here that, again, might be usual soft toys. One is The Harder They Fall, which might be Netflix play for this year. Jonathan Majors, either Seva, Lakeith Steinfeld, Regina mm-hmm. King, Delroy Lindo, Sassy Beats, like amazing cast. Please give Delroy yeah. Lindo his Oscar. Uh, that sounds great. Um, Amazon's pitch with Aaron Sorkin being the Ricardos, Javier Bardem, Nicole Kidman, J.K. Simmons, Ninda Riande. Like every movie has everyone. Tony Hale, it's also this one. Great cast across the board <laughs> in every movie this year. Every movie has a great cast. People keep dunking on the Ricardos, and it's like, I, I get dunking on Sorkin. I dunk on Sorkin. That's that's fine. But somebody not looking like the person they're playing does not matter. Right. I think in another Sorkin script, Steve Jobs, Fastbender does a tremendous job capturing Steve Jobs, despite not looking at all like Steve Jobs, unlike Ashton Kutcher, who is a spitting image of young Steve Jobs and really can't carry his jobs movie as long as you're you're conveying the essence of the character and trying to get to, to some specificity a visual match doesn't really matter to me so yeah i'm, I'm compelled by that one too yeah and i know in this podcast i mostly dunked on sorkin but he's someone that because of well he's a director in this one but because of the social network i'm giving sorkin every pass of the world and i'm watching everything uh-huh. he does and i might not like it after i watch it but i'm gonna watch it because when he hits he really hits so, uh, those those were the kind of the, the fast and furious honorary mentions for Ethan. <laughs> what did you have for yours? So, f- to kick things off, the this last year was supposed to be Anna de Armas' year. Mm-hmm. This year might be Anna de Armas' year. She's got a Bond film. She has Andrew Dominic's blonde Dominic, who d- I love the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. So very compelled to see what he does with a Marilyn Monroe biopic starring her. She's also starring in Deep Water, which is an Adrian Lyne erotic thriller. Starring her and Ben Affleck. That's where they met. It's where they fell for each other for COVID times. Or Anna de Armas got in love with Dunkin' Donut Ben Affleck. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So I'm I'm here for Anna de Armas' year. We also have Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright, who's mm-hmm. never made a bad film, Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomas and McKenzie and Matt Smith, and it's in 60s London. Perfect. Don't Look Up, Adam McKay. I'm here for dumb, blunt Adam McKay. Please hook it into my veins. The Card Counter, which is Paul Schrader, Oscar Isaac. It's got a great cast. He okay. did First Reformed a few years ago, which is excellent. He, of course, wrote Taxi Driver. Excited to see what this film is. And then the only other one we haven't mentioned is 3,000 Years of Longing, which is a, it's George Miller's follow-up to Fury Road before he goes back into the desert to shoot Furiosa, his sequel prequel to Fury Road. I I can't, I think it's a prequel. Yeah. Because he said Charlie Theron was too old to play her. That's right. Yeah. And I think Anya Taylor-Joy is still cast in that. We'll see. 3,000 Years of Longing, there's not much about it, but... 
it's Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, and it's like a genie romance. So I'm gonna watch. I George Miller's a fascinating director that I dove deeper on last year, and every one of his movies is compelling in its own way. So excited to see something that's not Mad Max for a minute. Yeah. Oh, that's a good list. Hey, Anna de Armas and Ben Affleck could be there at the end of the year fighting for the awards, which would be funny. Yeah, and it's just a shame that they can't be walking the red couple as a, a red carpet. Red as couple, couple as a carpet. The red cu- <laughs> couple as a carpet. That, that's our title. The red yeah. couple as a carpet. <laughs> the one elephant in the room. Well, there's a few elephant in the rooms. I think we're both excited about Dune. We're both <laughs> excited about the French Dispatch, mm-hmm. but I think the shelf life of those movies in as much as the discourse around them is we've been thinking about these for a year before they got pushed i just wanted to focus on newer things for the most part with the exception of the pines yeah i think that makes a lot of sense okay auas i have a pretty simple unexpected one after going through our lists great who's going to win best picture in the heights in heights are you going to win we're riding it all the way to the top why not i I feel like In the Heights and there, there's a lot of calculi that go in here. PTAs do for an Oscar. People could be really compelled by quite a few of these movies, but I'm going to go for In the Heights over West Side Story because Spielberg has an Oscar and a Best Picture winner and John Chu doesn't. And this seems like it'll be a big return to a lot of things for this summer and this year. Okay. I think I have In the Heights. I have Guillermo del Toro for director, of course. The, the best director category is going to be crazy. Steven Spielberg, uh, Guillermo del Toro, hard, yeah. Ridley Scott, uh, John Chu, uh, Wes Anderson, Denis Villeneuve, uh, Aaron Sorkin, again. Who knows? I don't think it's going to M. Night Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan, yeah. I guess you never know. Uh, yeah, ton of folks. I could, see, I could see it swinging towards Wes Anderson if the French Dispatch is really good and really timely. It could also be bad or not timely we'll see how it is but I, Wes Anderson's also due for an Oscar so could be Anderson v. Anderson this year yeah so many musicals in the Heights Wasted Story Dear Evan Hansen Tick Tick Boom all of those could be in the run for things yeah hey if if the Golden Globes exist next year Evan Hansen's sweeping them <laughs> the musical category <laughs> it'd be funny if if you had I could see a world in which they nominate Dear Evan Hansen for musical and then Tick, Tick, Boom, West Side Story and In the Heights are all up for drama. drama. Could you imagine? Oh my God. It'll be awful. Do you, do you have an AUA for me? I do. Okay. This is completely out of left field and it's just a fun fact I became obsessed with yesterday. So you're, you're going to ask me if I know a fact? Yes, that's my AUA this week. Okay. Jeopardy. Trust me, it's worth it. Can you do it like a Jeopardy? Like, tell me the answer and I have to come up with it as a question? Yes. Oh, yes? Okay. I can I can do that. This person was NASA's original choice to fly into space on the Challenger mission before they chose Krista McAuliffe, who ultimately perished in that Challenger mission on live TV. So, so he was chosen as an astronaut? Yes. Because the Challenger also had the first teacher? So who was supposed to be the civilian representative on the Challenger mission before they chose Krista McAuliffe and traumatized the generation of children watching it in TV in their classrooms? Is this somehow related to media and entertainment or has nothing to do with that? It it is. You will never guess this, but it is a media and entertainment person. (laughs) 
Okay, give me a couple of hints. If I'm never guessing this, like let's let's play. Okay, tall, which is why they were ultimately not chosen for the mission. Okay. Beloved by children. Okay. So the challenger was 1986. Uh huh. A children's entertainer who is very tall. Okay, I have. Uh, uh, what's the name of the A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? Mr. Rogers. Is Mr. Rogers? Great guess. No? But no. Okay, wait. I'm going to tell you. The okay. guy that plays Big Bird. Yes, it was Big Bird. Really? <laughs> they were going to send Big Bird into space. Oh, I can't believe I got that. They were going to send the puppeteer in character as Big Bird into space on the Could Challenger. You imagine. Oh, man. <laughs> That would have been awful. They would have to cancel Sesame Street. Wow, that's great. And why did why didn't they? Because they he couldn't he couldn't be in costume as he took off. It was it was too tall. And they wanted it to be Big Bird. They didn't want the puppeteer. They wanted it to be Big Bird because they were trying to get kids and students excited about space and they were gonna have Big Bird to do stuff in space. So it was a it was the height was ultimately the big thing. I imagine there was also probably operational challenges around making a suit that looked like Big Bird that didn't have feathers that would float everywhere. But can you imagine how, like, radically, like, the entire, like, Gen X would be even more traumatized by Big Bird dying on TV in the Challenger explosion. That is so great. I have another one that has relate is related to this and space. So, Apollo 11 is the first, this is great, Apollo 11 is the first, of course, mission to land on the moon. Do you know? Have you heard about Apollo 10? Yes. Okay. For anyone who hasn't learned, Apollo 10 was basically the wet, like the rehearsal. They did everything. They went to the moon. They separated the command module from the landing module. They went like very close to the moon and then they came back up. In Apollo 11, Eagle is the name of the lunar module. The Eagle has landed. Do you know the name of the command module and the lunar module for Apollo 10? Come drop in spider. Nope. I'm pretty sure they're gumdrop and spider, aren't they? Nope. <sighs> no, don't look it up. Don't look for Apollo 10. Okay. It's not that. Fine. I don't know. I was okay. so certain it was gumdrop and spider. Who? Which was? Which were gumdrop and spider? I don't know. We can figure it out. But no. Nope. Okay. Okay. So it's a it's it's a guy. It's a it's a boy from a cartoon and his pet. One is a command module. One is a lunar module. Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Charlie Brown and Snoopy. <sighs> okay, I was I had Apollo Nine. Ugh. Yeah, so Charlie Brown was the the command module and Snoopy was uh, the lunar module, which is awesome because they used they did this midst of the Cold War and they did a ton of like informational videos for kids mm -hmm. and for people around Charlie Brown and Snoopy explaining basically the the lunar race and you know the rocket race and whatever space yes. race. And part of the deal was uh, Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Well, that is a great fact. Very relevant to the Big Bird discussion. And only on this show, only would, this show. would one of the hosts get mad because they named <laughs> a different set of command module, lunar module names Combo. for the Apollo missions. Yeah, you got it wrong by one. Um <laughs> Well, that's very funny. The, the Big Bird one is one of those uh, what-ifs in history. Literally traumatized an entire wheel. generation. Like, literally saved millions of children from having PTSD. 
This is a pretty good call. I'm sure Krista McAuliffe was rough, especially, I'm sure, for, you know, her school. But just Big Bird, what would they have done? Like, you can't unkill Big Bird in that scenario. <laughs> in live TV, in this era where, oh, man. Wow, that's a great fact. That's a great AUA. <laughs> that's base era AUAs. Well, on that note, I think that's a great place to end our episode about movies news everything we covered a lot of ground today i'm proud of us a lot of ground and if we are quick we're gonna end in less than an hour and a half so thanks everyone for listening this was great remember to rate subscribe review send to your friends to your family to your big bird and charlie brown enthusiast and uh we'll talk to you next week bye <laughs>